would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 20. And I want to read in your hearing verse 19. John 20 and verse 19. I'm sorry, further down. Verse 19 to 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Let's pray together. Father, as we take your word into our hands, as we would have read it and heard it, we pray, Lord, we would understand it. We pray that we would apply it. We pray that we would live it. We're thankful that you have revealed this great salvation in the person of Jesus, that you have borne witness to the truth. You have told us of your great power at work in him when you raised him from the dead. We're thankful for these resurrection appearances. We're thankful for the teaching our Lord gives in his resurrection body to his own disciples and that we could hear that and we can listen in to it and we can understand more of your will and your ways. We pray, Lord, that your presence would be with us, your spirit would enlighten us, our hearts would hush and hear your holy word as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at John's account of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And John's account, along with the other resurrection accounts we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all culminate in our Lord's appearances, his post-resurrection appearances. The great resurrection chapter of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us this, that not only that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures, but it goes on to say, and that he appeared. And that he appeared. He appeared to Cephas in verse 5 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Then we're told he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. I'm not sure all the apostles differ from the twelve, but to all the apostles we're told. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me. He appeared to me on the road to Damascus in resurrection glory. Luke, in his opening to the book of Acts, he says in Acts 1 and verse 3, that he, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Clearly, the resurrection appearances have great apologetic value in the defense and confirmation of the gospel itself. It also has significant theological value in that Jesus' post-resurrection appearances involve words. Ways he instructed his disciples, ways he spoke about, as Luke tells us, the kingdom of God. We've noted the first resurrection appearance that John tells us about in chapter 20, that Jesus appeared to Mary. That gets cut out of Paul's account. I think largely that's because the testimony of women in the ancient world was not regarded as legal. God regarded it. God in Christ appears to Mary. And then since Mary, again, remember, I think I mentioned last week that a lot of the early church fathers called her an apostle to the apostles. And think about it, an apostle is a sent one who has seen the risen Christ. And she saw the risen Christ. And then Jesus says, go to my brethren. So he sends her. He sends her. Though she wasn't an apostle in an official sense or not part of the twelve. Yet she functions as one of the first who declares the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. I saw the Lord. And here are the things that he said to me. And so he appeared to Mary at the tomb, the garden tomb. And she went to the disciples and she told them she had seen the Lord. And, he, and then he, he, he spoke to her and he tells her, he relates to them the words of Jesus that he's ascending to the Father, to his God and our God. Now in this next section that we read part of this morning, we see that Jesus appears for the first time to the twelve. But of course, there's not 12 men here. See, 12 is a technical expression in the New Testament. Jesus chose 12 men to be his apostles. And where did the number 12 come from? Well, it came from the fact that Jacob had 12 sons, or there were 12 tribes of Israel. Israel was comprised of 12 tribes. And we read about the holy city, the New Jerusalem in Revelation, the fact that the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, the foundation stones have the name of the twelve apostles. So there's something of Jesus bringing a new Israel about, or a reconstituted Israel about. And he does it with the choosing of twelve disciples. And these become the ones of the foundation of this enterprise. He's engaged in of building his church. Paul tells us the church is founded upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. That's why after Judas left the twelve twelve and betrayed the Lord, went out into the night, ultimately going out to hang himself, there had to be another one chosen to be part of this group of twelve that bore witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so Luke tells us, actually, when this appearance to the apostles took place in Luke 24, you had the disciples who met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, returning to Jerusalem and going to the place where the twelve were gathered. Except there Luke tells us it was eleven. So it's whittled down to eleven because Judas isn't there. But here in John, we find not only 
is there 12 minus 1, 11. There's 11 minus 1 because Thomas is not here at the first time that Jesus appears to these apostles. But it's still a technical idea. So Paul could say he appeared to the 12, meaning the apostles of our Lord. Jesus, on the very night of his resurrection, on the evening of that day, it says, in the words of verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus makes his first resurrection appearance to the twelve, to the apostles, to those whom he chose to be with him throughout his public ministry, these ones who were to be eye and ear witnesses of his resurrection and of the things he said and did, now he comes into their midst. This appearance of Jesus must have been totally unexpected. It was strange and surprising. Not just because it was the presence of one who was formerly dead. I mean, that itself would be amazing and astounding. But he now appears in their midst in a room that was locked apparently there were the fear of the Jewish leaders who by now must have gotten wind of the fact that something happened at that tomb that the stone had been rolled away that the tomb was empty the body of Jesus was not there perhaps they were fearing in the light of that for their safety and so they meet within locked doors Yet we don't read Jesus came to the door and started knocking. He wasn't admitted through the door. He simply appeared. He stood among them. The text tells us Jesus came and stood among them. Again, we don't know all the qualities of a resurrection body, of its capabilities, of what it can and cannot do. Clearly there is continuity, but there's also difference. There's a reason, as we saw last week, that Mary didn't recognize him. And yet when he calls her by name and says, uh, Mary, uh, she knows his voice. There's something that clearly was recognizable. This is Jesus. There's something recognizable about Jesus. He says in Luke's Gospel... And a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me have. I'm not a ghost. I'm not a spirit. He showed them his hands and his side. This is Jesus. This is the one they nailed. They put the nails through his wrists. They put the nails through his hands. And they thrust the spear through his side. He showed them his hands and his side, validating that in fact it is him. And seeing him, their sadness turns to gladness. Their fear turns to joy. They were glad when they saw the Lord. It's at this point that Jesus begins to speak to them, begins to instruct them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Verse 21 to verse 23, he tells them, he speaks to them 
about three great realities. So when I started to write out this sermon and think through it, I really thought I was going to do all three this morning, but it doesn't appear I'm going to. We're going to look at three things over the course at least of this week and next week. And the first thing is the project that Jesus sends them to, or maybe the commission you can call it. Then the power to do the project, and he breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And then a word about pardon. A word about pardon, about remitting sins, forgiving sins, and retaining sins. And so these three things constitute the instruction our Lord gives to the twelve. This instruction concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Their project. The power they're given. The authority they have to confer pardon. This morning we'll look at the project. What's the work that they're given to do? Clearly the work of Jesus in a sense is done and over. It's complete. He says it's finished. But that just means redemption's finished. Or the the price of, of redemption has been paid. That means the suffering is over. That means the purpose of his earthly sojourn has been done. He came into the world to bear witness to the truth and to seal that witness with his blood the blood of sacrifice, the blood of atonement, the blood that reconciles. And so that is over. That is done. That is finished. That's complete. And yet there's a work in the world still to be done. There's the work of Jesus. It's interesting how the book of Acts begins. Paul, Luke says in the book of Acts that the former book he had written, which is the Gospel of Luke, he says are the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the assumption is, if you're reading that, it's written to the same guy, Theophilus. If he's saying that book, Luke, is about the things Jesus began to do and to teach, the assumption would be, hey, maybe this book of Luke, of Acts, is the things Jesus continued to do and to teach. No longer upon the earth, but from the throne of his heavenly glory, of his heavenly glory through the apostles by the Holy Spirit. You know, we call the Acts the Acts of the Apostles or sometimes the Acts of the Holy Spirit but it may well be in terms of what Luke is saying it's really the Acts of the risen Christ it's the Acts that Jesus continued to do and to teach Jesus' work goes on in the world he is building his church against which the gates of Hades will not prevail and vital to the work of human salvation is the the continuance of this work It's the project that the church has sent into the world to do. It's expressed in different ways. In Matthew, it's expressed in terms of what we've come to call the Great Commission. Surprised recently to find out that that's a new expression. The church in history didn't really call it the new, the the Great Commission, but we do today, and it's not a, a wrong term to use. But we know that Jesus told them they were to go. They were to make disciples of all the nations. They were to baptize and they were to teach. The other Gospels have different versions of really the same thing. 
But John summarizes this instruction, this teaching, this commission, this work, this project that the disciples are sent into the world to do with these words. Jesus said to them, verse 21, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That's interesting, it begins with a repetition of Jesus' words, peace be with you. Notice, it appears twice in the passage. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, in verse 19. And then in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. What means this repetition? Well, some people think, well, peace be with you is just the Hebrew way of greeting. Jesus say to one another, shalom, shalom. That's the word for peace in Hebrew. But this is ever so much more than just a matter of polite greet, Jesus politely greeting them. It's a conferral of the blessing of peace upon his followers. The psalm writer declares that the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of shalom, the abundance of peace. God's people are given abundance of peace. And peace can be viewed in one of two ways. It can be viewed the way that the Greeks viewed it. The Greeks viewed it that peace came when the battle ceased, when the warfare stopped, when the treaty was signed, and the guns quit firing, and the bombs stopped falling. And then you have peace. But the Jewish idea involved that for sure. The warfare ended. But even more than the warfare ended, that all of the results of the warfare would be removed, and in its place, prosperity, abundance would grow. That all of the burnt out buildings would have been rebuilt. And all of the fields scorched over by the war begin to grow fruitful trees again begin to blossom once again that there would be the abundance of peace there would be prosperity that would be given and sometimes we think of the reconciliation that the gospel brings as just well we're under wrath and now we're no longer under wrath well blessed be God that's true but even more than that we have access where he can stand in God's presence. We can know the joys of his communion. We can know the power of his healing and his grace and his love that overflows our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's not just peace with God, but it's the peace of God that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These men are going to be going forth with a message of peace. They're going to be sent as ambassadors of the Prince of Peace, bringing a gospel of peace. Before they're capable of going and equipped to go, they need to be the recipients of peace. They need to be those upon whom the peace of God is conferred. The Prince of Peace has come among them. 
having made peace through the blood of his cross. And before commissioning them to this project of bringing the message of the peace of God and the peace of the gospel, a ministry of reconciliation to the world, Jesus again says, peace be with you. It said in the farewell discourse in chapter 16, he ended it with these words. He says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And in me you have peace. Would you know that by meeting most Christians today? They're just filled with heart problems and heart trouble and everything is despairing and the world is as worse as it ever has been. It's worse than it'll ever will get. Folks, don't believe that for a minute. The world has not changed. Regardless of what the Supreme Court has ever done in its history, the world has not changed. Human nature has not changed. The God who has worked in history bringing salvation to to sinners, who has worked to bring revival in the world in past times, is not incapable of re-displaying those exhibits of His grace. And we should live in hope, not fear. We should live with confidence, not dread. We don't have to be scurrying away to the upper room, locking the doors behind us, because everybody's after us, they're all looking to get us. Jesus is in our midst. Rejoice. Be glad. He is our peace. And we fight the fight of the faith from victory, not for the victory. The victory has been won. It's been secured. We're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We'll never spread the gospel in any effective way if we are not partakers of its peace. So Jesus prefaced the words of commission, the words of defining what this project is with the conferral of his peace. And then he says this. He says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I know it's in the mind of my wife right now. We all love Margaret Clarkson. (laughs) Margaret Clarkson, the Canadian school teacher, she wrote those books, right? Those Bible story books. But she also wrote a great hymn that some of you know. It's one of the great missionary hymns. I think in the early, in the mid 50s, it, it came out. It's called So Send I You. So Send I You. And it's a great missionary hymn. But sadly, at least in my estimation, it captures but a part of what the truth is. It captures one aspect of the meaning of this commission of Jesus. It captures the aspect of the hardships, the difficulties of Christian life, of Christian mission, of Christian discipleship. In other words, so send I you 
to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing, so send I you to toil for me alone. Now, from that one aspect of the troubles and the hardships, it's encapsulating a, a, a truth, the truth of missionary experience, but not the only truth, not the sole truth. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to dear desire, self will resign, to labor long and love where men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. Now that's wonderful comfort in the midst of the troubles and trials and tribulations of the world. To lose our life in him. To find in him our joy. To find in him our encouragement. Surely Jesus was sent to suffer. Jesus was sent to die. And the people whom he sends into the world are not greater than he is. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus told them, the time will come when men will think that you're serving God by putting you to death. They'll cast you out of the synagogues, they'll do all these things to you. And certainly that is part of the equation of Christian discipleship, the equation of Christian mission. But that's not the only thing. And the wonderful thing about reading the book of Acts is you see persecution again and again and again and again. But in the midst of all this persecution, you know what you find happening? The church is growing. Disciples are being added. You see the success of the mission. Fear not, Paul. I have many people in this city. See all the marks of God's power at work. His grace at work. It's not in the midst of just absolute hopelessness and terribleness. Evil surrounds us at every point. No, we're on the winning side, folks. Now, it seems to me the chief aspect of the project that Jesus is sending his people upon is not their sufferings, it's not their hardships, it's not their sacrifices. Jesus himself defines his work in chapter 18 when he stood before Pilate. He says, For this end I was born and came into the world that I might bear witness to the truth. That's the heart of it all. As the Father sent me to bear witness of the truth, so send I you to bear witness to the truth. Sometimes that means persecution. Sometimes that means opposition, but not always. And the point of it all is that we are to be a people who simply are faithful to the commit to the commission of Jesus to be truth tellers to bear witness to the truth and these men were to do it in public ways they were to do it in ways of having holding the office in the church of an apostle being foundational figures in the preaching of the gospel to bear witness to Jesus as eyewitnesses and ear witnesses to the truth we're not all apostles. We're not all called to go out and preach in the streets. We're not all called to defend the gospel before the leaders of Athens at Mars Hill. Apostles were called to do those things. But all of us have a role in this, folks. All of us can tell forth the things we know and believe, the things that God has done in His goodness and in His grace. And again, it says our hearts are filled with the knowledge of His peace, with the knowledge of His salvation. That loosens tongues that 
sometimes get very tongue-tied. Sometimes we don't know what to say. But God is able to give us at least an ability to say, I know the Lord and He has known me. And He has placed in my heart the power of His love and the power of His grace. And I seek to be, seek that it is to be reflected in my life. So we can preach the truth, speak the truth. In whatever context we're called to do it, with our children, with our family members, with the people who are our work associates, being wise as serpents, harmless as doves, not just droning on, proclaiming when people say, please leave me alone. You know, sensitive to them, loving them, endeavoring to have love pave away into their hearts, but to yet do it with boldness, do it with compassion, do it with sincerity, leading with love at every step of the way. These disciples went forth into the world to be teachers of the gospel, to be preachers of the truth, to tell the things that they know, to bear witness to the truth of the Lord Jesus. But that's not the only thing that Jesus was sent in the world to do. In fact, in chapter 1, when Jesus is first spoken of in terms of being the eternal word, Again, that's the, the truth of, of, of God in him, bound up in him. But he, he comes incarnate amongst men. He comes and it's just not that we understand God's truth from some uh, perspective of just seeing the, the majesty of the heavens or seeing the glory of divine attributes. We see it embodied in a human being. We see it embodied in a person. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. We saw him as incarnate God. Israel's God come in human flesh. We also saw a man who loved us. Who showed forth compassion. And we're told in the end of the prologue, in chapter 1 and verse 18 of John's Gospel, that no man has seen God at any time, but the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, revealed him, expounded him. In other words, he's shown us God. As the Father has sent me to show forth the Father's glory, the Father's love, the Father's goodness, the reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus not only comes to teach and bear witness of the truth, he comes to show us who God is. He comes to show us the love of God and the compassion of God and the goodness of God and the holiness of God. We learn not only by the way Scripture teaches, but also what we see in Jesus. He that comes after me, let him follow me. How do you follow him? Well, you follow him in terms of understanding what he said, but also understanding what he did. He's left us an example that we should follow in his steps. In other words, to be a Christian, by very definition, means to be a little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, is to be a little Christ. And it is an interesting thing that in the book of Acts, when... They saw the men who were his disciples going forth as, you know, being sent as Jesus was sent in their boldness. 
in their willingness to suffer. And all that they saw in them, they noted that these men had been with Jesus. Why? They were reflecting something of Jesus. We see something of Jesus in them. In other words, Paul tells us, whom he foreknew, he foreordained to do what? To be conformed to the image of God's Son. He's the model of holiness and love and goodness and excellence that we are called upon to display. This is my commandment, that you love one another, not just as you love your neighbor. That's the law. It said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm sorry, to, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But, but, but to love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. As love is displayed in me. As we see the love of God in the cross. God has shed abroad in our hearts His love through the Holy Spirit that bears witness to Christ. People should see Christ in us. Take note that we have known Jesus. We have communed with Jesus. We love Jesus and something of that love is demonstrated in us. It's not just that as the Father sent him to suffer, so we are sent to suffer. Not just as the Father sent him to speak the, wit- the words of truth, to bear witness to the truth. It's not just as the Father sent him into the world to show forth who God is, but he also sent him into the world to serve, to serve. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I am among you as one who serves. This is the one who's sitting at table with them, took up the basin, took up the robe, uh, took up the towel, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. Greater love is no man than this, that a man gives up his life for his friend, yes, but it's not just dying for others, it's serving others with our lives, giving of our time, giving of our substance, giving of our energies, giving of our prayers, giving of our involvement in the lives of other people. As the Father sent me to serve, so send I you to be servants of others. Inasmuch as you've done this unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. As the Father has sent me, not only to suffer, not only to speak, not only to show, not only to serve, but as the Father has sent me, to sympathize. That's the wonderful reality of the high priestly work of Jesus in the book of Hebrews, is that he's come to share our nature, to know from the inside what it is to live life in this world in the midst of the temptations of this life. And he doesn't turn away from the human condition. He turns towards the human condition. He turns towards his people with our burdens, with our failures, I was so of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, he said to his disciples. But he didn't turn his back to them. He turned his face to them. He forgave them. He loved them. He taught them. He spent time with them. And we are to do that with others. I love to be a man who sits in my study with my books. I love to read. I love to... Trace out all the ins and outs of theology. I love to be 
an analyzer of the text of Scripture with great care and close reading and, and all of the rest. Those are the things I delight in. I tell you, sometimes I feel guilty. Maybe I ought to get out of the study and go to the hospital and visit people in genuine need and show forth something of the reality of a Jesus who came into the world to seek and to save the lost, to heal the sick, who had concern for the people in the totality of their humanity. We need to be doing that stuff, folks. I was very heartened by the fact I took a look at the offerings this morning. And I, honestly, just to look, I couldn't tell the difference. What was the normal offering and what was the things given for compassion? I'd say that's about right. That's about right. We're not to be a people that are hardened to the needs of other people. Our Lord tender to those needs. Not just the great realities of the soul. But the healing of bodies, the feeding of the multitudes. Ministering to his people in the totality of their humanity. As the Father sent me, so send I you. And folks, when we really come down to it at the end of the day, Jesus is telling these twelve, and through the instruction that's given to the twelve, we learn that what the world sees about, or knows about Jesus and sees about Jesus, it first learns from you and me. It first learns from you and me. Now, lately we're hearing of the churches diminishing in attendance, of people leaving the churches in droves, couple million, the last report of the Southern Baptists, they lost in just a couple of years. And that's probably one of the most aggressive evangelizing groups in the world. And maybe it was that they were just cleaning up their statistics. Or, but there's diminishing sizes of congregations really throughout America. And you're just wondering, what is it that people are seeing or not seeing in the Church of Jesus Christ that's bringing about conditions of alienation? Why people are reluctant to darken the doorways of churches. And the reality is, folks, that so much of it we have indeed brought upon ourselves for the simple reason we have substituted our agenda, our projects, our ambitions for Jesus' ambitions and project. We've not reflected Him well. We've not cared for the needy, the abused, in fact, many have been abusers. And many churches have shielded abusers from the law, from the ramifications of the things they've done, the wicked acts that they've committed. They have found protection and refuge in the church because they are preacher boys. We got seminary presidents that are taking money out of the till in order to adorn their homes with riches and wealth that we just heard about just this week of the former president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I wish I could say that's the only first time that's happened, but it's happened again and again and again of church leaders just taking out money from the church for themselves. And we're talking millions of dollars. And we come before the churches and say, well, I've sinned, forgive me. 
With the confidence it's easy to get forgiveness amongst the people of God, because that's what we do. But we don't make accountability the mark of what we're about. We're not reflecting the heart and mind of Jesus that says, no, 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 look at the people you have victimized and the fact that millions of dollars that these people have put into your financial schemes, they've lost and you've paid very little. I saw that this week with a son of a very prominent preacher who left the ministry where he was making altogether ridiculous amounts of money to go into some private equity thing taking the money of the people of God and just simply ripping them off. The Security and Exchange Commission just came down hard on him but not as hard as those people that lost their money. Not as hard at all as the people that lost their money. And people of the world look at that and they say where's integrity there? Where's honesty there? Where's sincerity there? Where's holiness there? Where's love there? Where's anything that's Christ-like there? They're not seeing it. We're not displaying it. I'm not saying you, but by and large, you do. But I'm just saying that's our responsibility. That's our calling. It's not just to talk the talk, it's to walk the walk in the full display of Christ likeness in every aspect of life. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As He is sent to suffer, that we will be suffering for His sake with joy and gladness of heart for the privilege. We won't say, he's not kept his bargain with me. What bargain did God ever make with you to keep you from suffering? No bargain's ever been made with you. People are in their churches saying, God's not kept his bargain because I haven't gotten all that I want in life. They've been just given a false bill of goods. It's a false gospel that they've been taught. But we need to display for them what the true gospel is. This shows God's power that in the midst of suffering, I'm not wilting. I'm not about to pack it in. I'm not about to deny my faith. It's so easy to keep your faith if everything's going well. It's when you get the doctor's report that says something is seriously wrong. That's where the test of your reliance upon God comes in. The world needs to know that's who we are. That we reflect the reality of a Jesus who suffered in love for a dying world went to the cross to pay the price for our sins and in resurrection life and in resurrection power enables us to be those more than conquerors the Paul says ought to be describing us it ought to be describing us as the Father sent me and to suffer so I send you as the Father sent me to speak and bear witness to the truth so send I you as the Father sent me to show forth the reality of the the holiness and love and attributes of the living God. So I send you to reflect me in the midst of this world. As the Father sent me to serve, I send you to serve. As the Father sent me to sympathize with the lost and dying world, so send I you. It's a tall order to take seriously our mission. To take seriously the great gospel project in the world. That's why the next part's so important. He breathed on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. There's nothing ever gets done apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. But again, God does not deny us His Spirit. He gives us His Holy Spirit in an act that's so reminiscent of creation. Because the reality is the gospel brings 
a new creation. Well, folks, I'm out of time. But God willing, we'll pick it up next week. Let's go before the presence of the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for our Lord Jesus. We're thankful for the work we're called to do into this world, in this world. That we all have a responsibility to reflect Jesus. And we pray for grace to do this. We ask you to hear our prayers as we come before your presence once again. In Jesus' name, amen.